Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today for a second time we have Dr. Herbert Gintis on the show uh, and he's also now a patron of the show so thank you a lot for your support Dr. Gintis. And we've decided on having a second interview to talk basically about altruism and self-interest revealed through lab and field studies of human behavior. So that's basically the title of the episode. And we're going to focus mostly on chapter th three of one of Dr. Ginty's books, The Bounds of Reason, Game Theory and the Unification of the Behavioral Sciences. So Dr. Gintis, thank you a lot again for coming on the show. Well, it's great to be here. Okay, great. So, I mean, last time, I guess that it was uh, by the or toward the end of the interview, I asked you what you meant by rationality or reason. And I guess that to start off this interview, we should go back to that question and talk again a little bit about it, because this is very crucial and also to understand so, uh, later in the interview, some of your criticisms of disciplines like social psychology and so on. So uh, in game theory, you talk about rationality as preference consistency. Could you explain what is that about? Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the term rational mm -hmm. is pushes people's buttons all over the place because it has an everyday meaning the everyday meaning differs for every different person. There's no con. If you look in the dictionary, you don't find some wonderful overall definition. And people disagree with each other about what the term means. For instance, if I, some people would say, if I eat uh, cereal for breakfast, that's irrational. You should be eating eggs for breakfast. Um, but in economics, and uh, it has turned out that... Uh, about certain people like John von Neumann and Oscar Mergenstern and uh, uh, Savage defined a concept of rationality, which is a very minimal concept, um, but it's applicable and it's totally mathematically consistent. And it's this, every book that I've ever written on the topic, I go in great length to show that this is this this concept is mathematically rigorous and very simple and I, i'll say basically what it is this is you're rational you're a rational decision maker if you have transitive preferences that is if you prefer a to b and you prefer b to c then you prefer a to c because if you prefer a to b and b to c and c to a you just go around in circles you're not making any rational choices Right. Now if you, right. So if you add a few things to that, very few, you get a whole model of uh, behavior in which people maximize something like their expected utility. And the pref the, uh, 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 it's a probabilistic concept because when you make choices, you're choosing what they call lotteries. That is, they don't have fixed outcomes. If you decide to go to a certain restaurant for dinner, you're not sure whether the chef will be the good chef or the bad chef. So you got a lottery. So you go there, sometimes it's a good chef, sometimes it's a bad chef. So um, basically, 
decision theory, rational decision theory, is a choice among lotteries. That is, situations where you're unsure of the outcome, different outcomes have different value to you, and you try to get the best offsetting um, possibilities. And that, and there are really two ways to think of that kind of rationality. One is called instrumental rationality. Mm-hmm. Instrumental rationality means when you have a task, you want to achieve the, the task. And you're rational if you choose the best means of all the available means to get that task done. So, for instance, if you want to go to work, you choose the route which is the fastest route mm-hmm. or the safest route mm-hmm. or the cheapest route. But it, and it's very clear that you have transitive preferences because if one is better than the second and the second is better than the third, first is better than the third. But most choices that human beings make are not instrumental. For instance, if you want to say, I, I want to go to work, well, you want to go to work, but you also want to go on a pleasant trip, and you want to go on a safe trip, and you want to not spend too much money on tolls, and um, so therefore, you don't have a single goal. You can't be instrumental. You have to trade off among all these possibilities. Some days you'd like to be a beautiful trip. Other days you'd like it to be a fast trip. And, so, and that's the concept of rationality that's used in economics. It's called formal rationality. And by the way, if you're formally rational, you need not be instrumentally rational. You're not choosing one thing and trying to maximize it. You're trying to trade off a bunch of a number of things. Mm-hmm. You see, for instance, suppose you, you're in the subway in New York City and some guy faints. What do you do? Well, you have a complex choice among the number. You don't want to dirty your shoes. You think the guy may be uh, faking. He's going, to, uh, he's going to grab you when you go over. You want to get home because your wife is cooking dinner. You've got a hundred things to do. And you have to trade off among them. And one of them, or some of them, will say, go help the guy who's in trouble. And others will say, well, that's not what I want to do today. So mm-hmm. that's formal rationality. Now, the thing you have to know about this concept of rationality is it applies in economics almost all the time. There are wonderful examples of so-called non-rational behavior. For instance, the so-called Ellsberg paradox, which I won't go into, or uh, the LA paradox. People don't always behave in the way that I just described. Mm -hmm. But when they don't, it's very rare and it's very interesting from a psychological point of view of what's going on, that they have these intransitive preferences. And, um, but it's, you know what it's really like? It's like if you have a, a psychologist that does vision studies mm-hmm. and, and their optical illusions, you've seen those. You probably have some on your show. If not, you should, yeah? Now, you look at this optical illusion, and you know you know that the, this shade is the same as that shade. You absolutely know it, but you cannot see it. Mm-hmm. You know, so 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 these visual um, uh, paradoxes are very important psychologically, but that doesn't mean you don't see right. It doesn't mean human beings can't see right because look, they mistake this. It's like that with rationality. Not every there. There are certain very important. Uh, deviations from our, from that uh, um, 
a story I just told, but they're in everyday life, they're really quite unimportant, and you can assume that people are rational. That is, that they have transitive, consistent preferences. The only other discipline that really uses this concept of um, rationality is biology. And there, there it's really instrumental, because what does, that, what does any organism come to maximize? Answer, fitness. So if you're a fitness maximizer, you're always choosing the thing which most um, enhances your fitness. And uh, therefore, in biology, of course, if you study economics and biology, you're very much at home because you have these two disciplines have analytical cores that everyone in the world studies the same way. You, go to, you can go any economics department in the world and you get the same textbooks that you do in the United States or in Portugal or wherever. Mm -hmm. Same thing in biology, especially population biology. But disciplines that don't use the rational actor model that I described, they tend not to have any analytical cores at all. They just have a bunch of different theories. Uh, it's almost like art. You go to the art museum, you see all sorts of different stuff. It's really great. But nothing unifies it. So, for instance, in sociology, and by the way, I get very animated about this because in fields that don't use the rational actor model, they tend to say it's wrong. Mm -hmm. Or it's right. wrong because otherwise they would use it. You have to use the rational actor model because, because organisms are generally rational. And you're just, you're, you're not seeing the main thing going on if you miss it. But for instance, um, uh, I, I once went through, because I work on the integration of the behavioral sciences. Mm -hmm. And I take sociology very seriously. I mean, I know sociology just as well as I know economics and just as well as I know population biology. It's very, very important what sociologists have to say. But if you read all the textbooks, even undergraduate, but mostly graduate, they, have, they don't deal with rational behavior at all. In fact, they tend not to deal with incentives at all. They assume that people are motivated by norms, but not by incentives as that is, if they behave differently, they'll get different payoffs. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the textbooks, when they, they don't deal with the rational actor model at all until chapter 13 or something, and then they say it's wrong. Now, I have seen a hundred critiques of the rational actor model. Not one of them is worth anything. They're all simply wrong. Um, so I want to stress, that, and, and the reason why sociology and social psychology don't have core disciplines is because they're ignoring the most important part of behavior, which is it's rational. Mm -hmm. So that's my point about the, and by the way, the, the usual thing is rational means you're selfish. Mm -hmm. no, it doesn't mean anything of the kind. You can rationally, I rationally give money to charity all the time. I love it. I, I'd rather give money to charity than spend more money on dinner. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, you know, People are, no, are, are moral individuals, and they behave morally as well as in self-interest. And you have to trade off between those, and that's what the rational actor model gives you. So, yes, that's the reason that I crusade about the rational actor model is if you want sociology to be a discipline with a core, that is, with some analytical set of principles that everyone in sociology um, learns, 
you have to include the rational actor. Now, let me make it clear. Just because you have a core doesn't mean that the core is correct. The core in economics is not correct. It has mistakes. And that's how we can move forward. You can move forward if you have a core, and then you take pieces of it and say, this is wrong, and we're going to replace it with that. Mm-hmm. Then you get progress. But in fields like sociology, there's no progress. You, you can read Aristotle, and you can read St. Thomas Aquinas, and then you go read uh, Talca Parsons and uh, Durkheim, and they all say different things. So you say, what? well, I'm going, to make, I'm going to make my own new theory. You know, it's Christomathia sociology, and it's better than all the other sociologies. And, you know, that doesn't happen in economics or biology. In economics, you don't read articles that say all the previous theories of, you know, the stock market are completely wrong, and I have my new theory. Mm-hmm. No, they don't do it. They say, here's what we've learned, here's what we accept, but here's what's wrong that we're going to replace with something else. Same thing in, in biology, in, in um, behavioral biology. Right. That is, um, people build on the past. As Newton once said, I see so far because I stand on the shoulder of giant. Oh, yes, right. Yes. And that's what should be, uh, there should be a unified behavioral sciences in which everybody accepts certain principles <clears throat> and then they branch off into their specialties. And that's what I've tried to do in my in two or three books, in, in Bounds of Reason and in um, uh, Individuality and Entanglement. And I, unfortunately, I don't think most social scientists don't buy that. They love their own discipline. They think all the other disciplines are crap. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they, they accept the principle of tolerance, which is, well, the economists are just a bunch of, you know, they could be CEOs of Kentucky Fried Chicken for all I care. But, you know, we say hello, we eat lunch together, and we don't criticize each other. Well, my, I don't believe that. I don't believe in tolerance. I mean, tolerance is wonderful in life, you know, in diversity and the different races and creeds, and I love them all. You know. But in science, there's one truth. There are not right. seven different truths. And you, don't be, you shouldn't be um, complacent and simply accept uh, what other people say uh, if you think it's wrong. And that's why I've worked on the, the integration of behavior science. By the way, my background is in physics and math. And in physics and math, you don't say, well, you know, if you have one and one equals seven, that's, you know, go for it, my friend. <laughs> you say, no, it's wrong. Why didn't one make two? Well, that's in your theory. But in our expanded universe, bloated theory, it's seven. Well, okay, well, then why don't you go you know, smoke some stuff or something because it's not science. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And, and, and I mean, you refer to several different things, but I guess that one that is very interesting to pursue a little bit more is what people do many times in disciplines like social psychology. Because if you look into, uh, um, for example, uh, when they are studying what they call biases and heuristics. I mean, it is really weird that sometimes they do the studies or design the studies in a way that they sort of 
uh, induce in people the kind of errors that they say they are looking for. And so, for example, sometimes they accuse people of committing certain biases or following certain heuristics. But when you really look into it, I mean, sometimes if you just gave people a little bit more of information or something to orient them more in, in a certain direction, then they would get there. The thing is that they sometimes it's weird because it seems as if they are uh, purposefully uh, omitting certain kinds of information just per, for people to fall for those biases or heuristics and even sometimes people use those kinds of mental shortcuts and they are not really irrational but they label them as irrational and I mean it's, it's a complete sure. mess as far as I understand it. Well, there two, two, let me say the two, two different things about that. First of all, I think that the whole literature on biases and heuristics is extremely important. And some of my best friends work on it, including Danny Kahneman, who got a Nobel Prize for it. Sure. Um, uh, and um, I, I think that work is very important. Mm -hmm. But I put it in the same category as optical illusions. Um, <clears throat> there are performance errors that human beings make sometimes, and you have to understand why they make them. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, but the other thing is that what we really mean by that is that they're performance errors. People try to be rational, but they make mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, and they make sometimes um, um, consistent mistakes. Most people will make this mistake. And that's, uh, uh, that's really true. Um, so I have no problem with that. But I, I certainly think you're right. Often, you induce these uh, incorrect judgments by the way the material is presented verbally or visually. And you have to distinguish between, you know, how people live their everyday lives and make decisions uh, and these specialized situations where you set them up so that um, they're going to make a mistake. Uh, and a lot of, uh, by the way, um, Gert Gigerenzer, who's a wonderful um, social psychologist, German social psychologist. You, have you interviewed him? Uh, Gert not, Gigerenzer? Not you should. He's, he's magnificent. Um, and what he has worked on is, is the same stuff as uh, Kahneman and Tversky, that is, um, different biases, most important being um, uh, represent, representational bias and others. And he's worked with doctors because doctors have to make decisions based on information, and they don't understand, I forget what it's called now, the frequency of a behavior um, in, in general, affects uh, the decision you make as to whether a given disease is um, present or absent. Oh, and, I think I think it's the availability heuristic, I guess. Uh, okay, let me give you an example, mm -hmm. if, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, if you take a test for AIDS, HIV, mm -hmm. um, and it's ninety percent accurate. Mm -hmm. And it comes back positive. Does that mean you have a ninety percent chance of having AIDS? And the answer is no. Here's the problem: a very small percentage of people have AIDS. Mm -hmm. If you take a thousand people, ten of them may have AIDS. Mm -hmm. 
well, actually, say one. One in a thousand will have AIDS. But if you test them with a 90% uh, accurate uh, measure, you'll find 10 have AIDS. Because <clears throat> there's a thousand, and it's 90% accurate, so it's 10% inaccurate. 10% of a thousand is 10. So you'll have 10 positives. But only one actually has AIDS. Right. So the probability that you have AIDS, if you test positive with a 90% um, uh, accurate test, the probability you have it is one-tenth, not nine-tenths. And that's what uh, GigaRenser has worked on. And it is a bias because you're not taking into consideration the frequency of the behavior uh, as it starts uh, in general. So there's all these things about that. But uh, generally, I, I, I just... When people say, oh, Kahneman and Tversky, and uh, they've all shown that people are irrational. That's just completely ridiculous. Human beings are the most successful, except for maybe cockroaches and, and um, bacteria. And, and, most and successful species. And, uh, well, we're all rational, you know. <laughs> it's just it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I, I guess that... Uh, since the Enlightenment or something like that, people have this sort of vision about uh, or view about reason and rationality uh, as if it, uh, if people don't follow um, or, or don't think in a way that lead them toward uh, scientific truths, let's say, then they are irrational. But I, I, I guess that maybe is a problem here when people interpret that literature and say that it proves that people are irrational, but that's not the, the best approach to have it, I guess. Well, you know, I've given you, a, the thing about most uh, academic or scientific approaches to behavior is we don't know a lot about how people behave. We, we've only really studied it for 50 years. I mean, in economics, when I studied economics, in fact, 10 years ago, I was reading the, the, the leading textbook for graduate students in economics. It didn't have a single reference to anything empirical. It didn't, it's all theory. And that, that's what people did. They did all theory. I mean, until, uh, <coughs> until very recently. So um, the theories are not that, are not totally developed. Now, I got off on a tangent there because I, I wanted to say something else. Um, well, let's move on, I guess. Yeah, let's maybe repeat, your, repeat your question, maybe. Oh, okay. My question was basically if you think that one thing that could be influencing people uh, when they interpret the results that come from social psychology, for example, and the literature on biases and heuristics, and then they say that that proves that, that people are irrational. It's just that the idea of rationality that they have in their minds is that it operates as if it oh, yeah. leads people towards scientific truth oh, yes. or something uh, like that. Well, that's ridiculous. Yeah. That's just ridiculous. I mean, it's, it, it may be a certain kind of rationality, but not anything that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Human beings have been rational, in the, the same as cockroaches, for thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of years. And they didn't do any science. Notice, when I say rational, I apply it to animals as much as to humans. Okay? In other words, if you want to understand how 
why crickets chirp in the evening, I'll show you a model of why they chirp, and it's rational. That is, they're maximizing their fitness by chirping <clears throat> or by not chirping. Let the other guy chirp, and you just waylay the, the females when they come across. So all of population, all basically all of animal behavior um, is uh, applied rationality theory. How is this animal maximizing fitness by behaving a certain way? So the idea that you say it's irrational not to be scientific, well, tell me about that to a spider. You know, a spider isn't scientific, but it does fine. And human beings did fine for a very long time before they did any science. The point is that believing in science, one of the weaknesses of the rational actor model is it takes beliefs as given. It's called the subjective prior of the individual. Mm -hmm. What does the individual come to a situation believing? Or what does a spider come to a situation believing? Believing in the sense that it has an internal model of the world of some kind. It could change that model. For instance, you know, if, if a prey comes into the web, it will change the model. Now there's a different model that I apply to figure out how to get to but but so it's called a subjective prior and in the, the uh, behavior in i'm sorry uh rational actor model it's taken as totally random it's whatever you happen to believe the only thing you require is you update using what's called bayes rule that is you update your if you get new information you adjust your beliefs in the direction of the new information now that is part of the rational actor model. It's absolutely true. Problem is, <clears throat> if you get new information and you don't like it, why don't you just forget about the information? Just deny the information. Now, in some cases, that's not a very good idea. If you hear a snake rustling in the grass while you're eating dinner, you say, well, I don't really feel like running away. I want to finish my dinner. I'm going to pretend there's no snake. Well, that's not a very good idea because a snake can come up on you. But if you're in a modern society and you're wondering whether there's climate change or not, you can believe whatever you want. It doesn't matter what you believe. What's the difference? You want to believe that the, the little green men come down and eat garden hose? Go believe it. Say, so, well, then you'll vote wrong. One vote never matters. It doesn't matter what you vote. You can believe the most outlandish things. You can have the most crazy political ideas. It makes no difference because one vote never matters. So you can deny the, the, the uh, Bayesian updating, which in general in psychology is extremely correct. It's, uh, there's huge amounts of evidence that, that all of our senses do Bayesian updating, visual, auditory, etc. Um, but when it comes to very advanced political um, behavior of human beings, uh, the updating is very, very slow. So for instance, and with climate change, um, I have argued over and over over the years that people take new information into account and they update accordingly. My friends, some of my friends, uh, I won't name names, but they're very famous, um, say, no, people just choose the ideas which uh, fits their political ideology. So if you're a right-winger, you say there's no climate change. If you're a left-winger, you say there is climate change. The problem with that is that people change their ideas over time. And there are a lot of people in the middle 
who don't really have any ideology at all about it. They just want to see what the evidence is. And that's what happened has happened in the United States with climate change. The, the percentage of <clears throat> Americans who say that climate change is real and dangerous and caused by humans has increased every year, or pretty much every year, over the past 25 years. And now it's by far a majority position in the United States. So the rational actor model is a very imperfect representation of the cognitive and cultural processes which go on because people we all do it if i get some new evidence and i think it's crazy i just forget about it it's not going to change my views on things you know but if i hear six times different evidence i said wait a minute here you know this is another now some people of course say well they're all evil they're all democrats you know they're all republicans or something but in fact, um, we all do that because you don't just change your ideas when one thing happens. Uh, but basically, the, the, the updating part is correct. People are not irrational. They do change over time. And, you can, and the scientific method and, and is the most powerful for, um, for dealing with it. But it, it's not, it doesn't work alone. For instance, if you look at the Ebola outbreak now in uh, what was it sudan where where i forget what country i think the sudan mm -hmm. a lot of um folk um culture says that it's caused by the people who come to vaccinate them against it and they, they it's very dangerous to be a health worker uh, in the ebola countries so but nevertheless the scientific method is correct but they have to implement it by a, a social process which makes sense to people in their daily lives and most science doesn't make sense to people in their daily lives because they don't do it you know one of the most amazing inventions that i've seen in recent years was this guy uh, invented a, a microscope made out of paper with a little bit of glass it costs about five cents to make a microscope but you can take this microscope into a very poor community, say in Africa, mm -hmm. and when you say they're germs, and you need you know public health in order to avoid getting hurt by germs, they say, "What's well, a germ? Give me a break!" You know, there's one more you know crazy idea, a germ. He said, "Well, watch, look under the microscope." See, and they show them, and then say, "Okay, I see." So you know, it, it, the social process is much more complicated than than the rational actor model. But it's the, the rational actor model is what we can stand on to move forward in other directions. Without that, you have no standing at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I guess that this issue that people have when they think about how we do science and how people that are not exposed to science are not able to arrive through reason or rationality to those same conclusions. I mean, it's as if people believe that we have some sort of mechanism operating in our minds that without us being exposed to the tools of science and to the scientific method and learning all of the different methods and approaches that we need to learn in order to be scientific, that uh, th there would be some uh, uh, thing operating in our minds that would be detached from the rest and that would leave us toward 
the objective truth or something like that. Right. It doesn't seem to make any sense to me. No, it, well, I, I don't think. Most of the scientific ideas that I accept, I accept because I believe other people who say they're true because they've worked on it and they're the experts. Mm -hmm. right. I, I'm just like everybody else. I don't know that. I mean, I, do, does brushing your teeth prevent cavities? Well, I never did a study of it. I never even saw a study of it. I have no idea whether it's true, but my dentist tells me it's true. And I trust, trust my dentist. When scientists say they're climate change, I can't even evaluate that. And I have read several books on it, you know, and I know the scientific method. Give me a break. I don't know whether there's These guys spend all day long, every day, for years and years, and they agree on a certain conclusion. And I believe them. Now, uh, same thing with the vaccines. I mean, I believe the scientists who say that vaccines are safe. The uh, people who are anti-vaxxers say, oh, no, it's big pharma and they just want to make more money. And I believe, you know, some crack. I believe this guy who says it's fake. And I say, well, what? well he just wants to make money, too. What do you think he's doing? He's making millions of dollars going around telling people that vaccines are bad. Oh well, then it's you know the the uh, conversation ends at that point because uh, so I think it's very cultural. The reason people accept science is because it's, is it has worked in their interests in their lives, and therefore they say the scientists are truthful and they believe the scientists. If they do not, if it doesn't work in their life, or something works better for them then they'll believe what's better for them. You can believe in creationism or intelligent design because it doesn't really matter. And it fits your religion very well. <clears throat> so that's not irrational. It's not irrational to have beliefs which make you happy. It's only a problem if those beliefs also hurt you. But lots of things that people choose hurt them. They smoke. They're obese. They, uh, you know, they... They don't take their medicines. Uh, so nobody says rational. The idea that people are rational means they do what's in their own best interest is just completely wrong. I mean, everyone knows that. <laughs> right. Okay, so let's talk now a little bit about the kinds of games that we can use in experimental and lab settings, let's say, to understand a little bit better certain aspects of human sociality and, sure. thi and things like altruism. But before, before we get into the specific games... Uh, earlier in the interview, you referred to a very important thing that I think we should explain here. That is, uh, so you said that many people have this idea that in order for people to be rational, they have to do things that are self-interested. And I guess that we should clarify here the difference between self-interest and self-regard and other regard, because they are not mutually exclusive. Right. right, right. Generally, when I write, I don't use the word self-interest at all. I use self-regard. Mm -hmm. Something is self-regarding if it affects only you. Mm -hmm. Self-interest means it's in your interest to do it. Now, for instance, I think being altruistic and helping other people and giving to charity mm -hmm. are self-interested. 
they're not self-regarding, but they make you a happier, better person. Make you a moral person. And by the way, happier. There's a lot of evidence on this. People who are outgoing and help others uh, and are unselfish tend to be happier than people who, you know, try to maximize whatever they get in terms of personal self-regard. So, yes, it's very important that people can be self-interested. Meaning what? Whatever you want, people are self-interested in the sense that they do what's best for their overall conception of the good for themselves and others. But that includes altruism. I mean, it's quite clear. The, uh, economics was really insane. It's very, very interesting that economic theory assumed self-interest for so many years. Of course, it's not true anymore. I mean, if you, if you, uh, students in economics don't learn that people are selfish, self, self-regarding anymore. They do have that assumption in some models, but let me make it clear. In a market situation where all you know is prices and you don't know who you're dealing with, it's, it's just uh, anonymous people that you trade with. You go to the supermarket, you don't know who's running it or anything. You just buy and sell. Um, people do behave self-regardingly in, that, in, in those situations. They don't take into account when you buy something from the shelf in the supermarket, you're not saying, well, I'm really helping the people who made this product. Now, sometimes you are. You can buy coffee that comes from Brazil, and it's good for the farmers, and et cetera. But mostly, you don't know anything about anybody, so you're selfish. Mm-hmm. But when you come to larger things outside of market interactions, um, people do not behave um, self-regarding manner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now that that is clarified, let's talk now about the games. Okay, so there are different kinds of games that people right. people can use in experimental settings, and each of them is used to explore different aspects right. of human interaction, interaction and sociality. Right. right. So, right, right. Uh, I mean, could you give us maybe? Uh, an overview of how that works, and then maybe we can talk about each specific game. Sure. Yeah, the examples are great. Mm -hmm. Um, Game. What's a game? Well, in the work we do, a game has a few parts. It has players who are people. (laughs) And it has rules, the rules to the game. What can the viewer allowed to do? And it has payoffs. So if you have five people and each of them can do four things, different things, you have all sorts of intera- possible interactions of the five people, and each possible interaction has a particular payoff. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's what a game is. So the question is, how do people behave in these games? And, <clears throat> it, and by the way, you can apply this to animals too. As I said, a, a great model of crickets is how... Ha- what happens when a cricket wants to mate? Well, um, it has one of two choices. First of all, it can make, it always happens at night. The males do all the cricketing, all the chirping, and they do it at night so they don't get eaten, which in, in the light they get eaten right away. Uh, so the male chirps, and the females come and they mate. The problem is, chirping is also dangerous because people can eat you, something can eat you while it, it just goes up and finds you chirping. Mm-hmm. So other males don't chirp. 
they stand around the outside and wait for the females to come. And they intercept the females. And so this is a game. So now the, what's this, then the question is, how, does, how do they behave? And the answer is, this is a little simplified, but something like this. For every chirping male, there's a whole circle of non-chirping males all around intercepting females but if there are too many all around no go to the chirp none go to the chirper and the chirper loses so the chirper stops chirping so there has to be what's called an equilibrium number of crickets around the circle like four or five not 50 and then they all make an equal amount of mating because if they're if there's if the people on this i'm sorry if the crickets on the periphery circle get more mating then um, the chirper will go to the outside and wait <laughs> rather than chirp. And if they do less mating, then uh, other crickets will come and form the circle. So you get an equal, it's called a Nash equilibrium, in which the chirper can't do any better than he's doing, and the non-chirpers can't rearrange themselves any way better to do what they're doing, and they have equal payoffs. So that's a, that's, that's a game. You can see what the strategies are. Two strategies, chirp, go to the peripheral, or third, go somewhere else. Search around somewhere else for a better situation. And um, the payoffs are mating. Uh, you mate or you don't mate. So that's an example of the, of the game with animals. Um, <laughs> right. And in what kinds of situations can we employ a game like Prisoner's Dilemma in humans? And... What aspects of our sociality can we understand through it? Well, I, I think I think it's a good idea to go through a simple game okay. before you know, like the prisoner's dilemma. I thought about this. The prisoner's dilemma is not that simple a game, um, but I, I think we can do it. Okay, here's the prisoner's dilemma. Um, there are two agents or two players. And they can either cooperate or defect. So the only thing they can do, cooperate, if they were prisoners, cooperate means don't rat on the other guy. Don't admit you did the crime. Mm -hmm. right. Defect is admitted. Okay, now there are two. Suppose they committed a crime and they got $20 and they split it up, they each have $10. Mm -hmm. If they shut up, and the police can't prove anything. So when they talk to them, if they both shut up, that is, they cooperate with each other, they are let off and they've got $10 each. So the payoffs to shutting up, shutting up, or, or cooperating, cooperating, are $10 each. If they both, you separate them, you don't let them talk to each other, and you, and you, you, you investigate them separately, um, if they both defect that is say yes we committed the crime here's where the money is if they both defect they get zero because the, the they let them off because they return the money and um they each get zero mm -hmm. now if one of them cooperates in one room and says well i'm not saying a word and the other one defects and says yes we did it the one who shut up gets 15 years in prison and the one who Cooperated gets fifteen dollars. <laughs> Cooperated, right. you got that? That's a game. There, there are four possible outcomes. Mm -hmm. Both can cooperate, in which case they each get ten dollars. 
Both can defect, in which case they each get zero dollars. One can cooperate and the other defect, in which case one gets 15 and the other gets minus 15. Mm -hmm. So those are all the outcomes. And then the question is, if you're rational, in the sense that I said, and self-interested, not just rational, but and mm -hmm. self-interested, what do you do? Well, here's what one guy says. If, if I defect and the other guy has defected, I get zero. But if I cooperate and the other guy defected, I get minus 15. I'm sorry, did I say it right? Yes, if he defected and I defect, we each get zero. Mm -hmm. If he defected and I cooperate, um, I get minus 15. So I'm going to defect if he defects. Mm -hmm. But what if he cooperates? Well, if he cooperates and I cooperate, we each get 10. But if he cooperates and I defect, I get 15. Mm -hmm. So I should therefore defect no matter what the other guy does. And that's the prisoner's dilemma. And you see it all the time. If you've ever watched, um, you know, uh, these crime programs, they get the guys, he's in the other room, he's spilling his guts. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I, I, now, I mean, the question is, this is the game, but let me go on. Mm -hmm. This is the game. But how do people play this game? Mm -hmm. How do people play this game? Well, it turns out that if you do it in the laboratory and you play exactly this game, people do not always defect. Mm -hmm. In fact, very often, they, um, they prefer to cooperate. And they will cooperate just because they don't want to be bad people. It's evil to defect. Um, and here, here's a slight change in the game in which almost everybody cooperates. It's called the serial uh, prisoner's dilemma. You play the same game, except one guy goes first, and what he does is transmitted to the other guy. Mm -hmm. So if the first guy defects, the other guy knows that he defected. Mm -hmm. If the first guy cooperates, the other guy knows he cooperated. But so when you play this game, the first guy very often cooperates. Because he believes that the other guy will also cooperate because it's the moral thing to do. It's the right thing to do. And in fact, that's what happens. A very high percentage of second choosers choose to cooperate, even though they make more money by defecting. And this shows that cooperation has a positive value to people. Again, go back to the rational actor model. They're not irrational. They just prefer to say, when they come out of the game, they said, I was a good guy, I cooperated, even though it cost me money, because money isn't everything, just money is something. Okay, so that's a good example of uh, showing the uh, how altruism works, um, that people do prefer to uh, cooperate very often, even though it's costly for them to cooperate, materially costly for them to cooperate, but psychologically superior to have been the right, done the right thing, quote unquote. Does that make sense? Yes. And this happens in the real world all the time. And people in everyday life cooperate all the time about things. When you get to the, an intersection without a, in your car without a light, people go in the order they came. If they didn't do that, there would be crashes all over the place. Why do, why do you behave according to that way? If everybody else behaves that way, you don't have to. You can get away with it because they're waiting around, you know. So at any rate, yes, that's a good, I think, a very good example of uh, altru altruism in the, in the lab. And also you do it in the field. Mm -hmm. 
But, but is it the case that if people go through a game, an iterative game, and they have several different opportunities at defecting or cooperating, that over time their interactions <coughs> go more toward cooperating or no. not? This is one of the most, this changed my life. When I first saw a study that showed the following, it's called the unraveling of cooperation. So you have a situation, I'll give you the, the, the game later. The game is called the, um, the public goods game. But in this game, people start by cooperating, and they do very well. But it, the cooperation declines over time. If you, do the thing, if you do the game ten times with the same people, in the end, nobody's cooperating at all, or very few. It's called the unraveling of cooperation. And what's going on is very simple. People prefer to cooperate with others who cooperate. But yeah. if, if only half the people cooperate, and by the way, when you play this game, at first about 60% cooperate and 40% defect. That is, and I'll we'll explain the game in a minute, but 60% cooperate. But people who cooperate are very upset about the people who didn't cooperate, and they cooperate less. Why? It's the only way they can hurt the people who didn't cooperate. It's by cooperating less. So then it goes down over time. It's called the, that's why we need police. You have to get the, the non-cooperators out of the way because, I mean, again, in traffic, if you didn't have any you know, police on the roads, most people would prefer to drive safely and, you know, not within a speed limit. Nobody does that, but, you know, within uh, some good range. But some people don't. And then when some people don't, other people get really angry, the people who cut into line, you know. And all of a sudden you, you get the, the, the unraveling of cooperation and, and social interaction becomes very uh, disruptive and uh, disputational. So um, that is an example of, of that process. That's right. But I'll, but I'll, I'll go on. First of all, let me, let me say what the game is. The game is very simple. Um, public goods game. I'll give an example. You give everybody $10. By the way, this is done in every country of the world. It could be shekels or drachmas or whatever. You give everybody $10 and you say, now, uh, this is yours, but we're going to make a public fund. Any number of dollars you can put in this public fund of the 10. And whatever you put in, I multiply, the experimenter multiplies by three and distributes it to everybody. So, Suppose there are five people. Every dollar I put in costs me a dollar, but then it gets multiplied into three by three. Three dollars are returned, and there are five people, so I get some of that money back. Five over three, you know, the dollar. Excuse me, <laughs> five over three. And um, so I, I lose money by cooperating, but everybody else gains. See, so if we all put all our money in. We put our ten dollars in. There's fifty dollars in there, and it's multiplied by three is one hundred and fifty, and then you divide by five and you get thirty. So if we all cooperate, we each get thirty. Mm -hmm. But if everybody else cooperates, I gain by defecting. Right. See, because I get all of their multiplied, but they don't get any of mine multiplied. So each person, if they, if each person were Selfish, self-regarding, he'd say, 
well, I'm just going to keep my money and I'll hope everybody else puts their money in the, in the uh, public good. So this is a, 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 this is a, what, an aphorism or it's a, it looks like what is going on in society where each individual sacrifices a little bit for the whole community. And if everybody does the sacrifice, everybody does really well. But as soon as some people start defecting, free riders, they're called, they're not cooperating, things fall apart because that's what happens in the game. At first, 60% put their money in. Well, let me put it this way. Some people put in all their money. Some people put in none of their money. It averages out to 60%. But then the people who put in their money, 100%, or 90 or 80 or 70, say, well, we only got 60 back, and I put in 80. So I'm not going to put in 80 the next time. I'm going to put in 60. But then the average goes down to 40. <laughs> so, so it unravels. Now, the study that I said changed my life was uh, done by a very famous researcher named Ernst Fair and colleague and co-authors or his research group. And he did a public, game, public goods game with punishment. Mm -hmm. Now, I should say first, all of my research has centered on punishment. Even though I talk about cooperation and altruism and this and that, the most important thing that humans being do, beings do to create a good society is they punish each other for their deviations from good society. Not the government, people in their daily lives. The government only comes in in special cases where you know individuals can't do it. If you have a serial killer, you're not gonna go punish them and say, bad person. <laughs> bad, bad. So you do have still room for you know the, the government or state but people punish each other. Now, and this, this is the social goods game with punishment. And you play 20 rounds. The fir first 10 rounds are like this. You play the public goods game. But afterwards, each person can punish someone else in the group that they please to punish at a cost to themselves. Mm -hmm. So you see on the board who, who, who contributed what. You don't know them as per persons. You don't even see them usually. They're usually anonymous. Mm -hmm. uh, and you say, for I'm going to spend a dollar, and that will punish this guy $3. Mm -hmm. That's the social goods game punishment. It could be $2 or $1.50 or even a dollar a dollar. So what happens then? The first round, 60% cooperate. But the good cooperators tend to punish the people who didn't contribute. And on the next round, the people who didn't contribute, some of them say, well, maybe I should put a little money in here because I'm going to get punished. And so the next round, it goes up to 70. And on the third round, it goes up to 85. And by the 10th round, it's up to 95% of the money being put in because people are being altruistic by punishing. Sometimes people think altruism is being nice. No. Sometimes altruism is being nasty to the people who are nasty. Right? Um, so that's what's going on. Then everyone's told, okay, now we're going to continue playing the game, but now there's no more punishment allowed. So you're up to 95%. The, the 11th round, and by the way, uh, okay, on the 11th round, it drops down to 40%. From 95. And then it goes down to zero, you know, close to zero by the 10th round, the 20th round. 
So the punishment's doing the job. Now, I should mention, what happens on the 10th round? The last round of punishment. They know, they know that it's the last round of punishment because they've been told there's going to be 10 rounds with punishment, 10 rounds without punishment. So in the 10th round, the people who put money in, only because they're afraid of getting punished, they could think this, well, no one's going to punish me on the 10th round because the reason they're punishing me is so I'll cooperate. Mm-hmm. But it can't work because they can't punish me again. Mm-hmm. So if you think, if the people who are cooperating because they think they're going to be punished, and they think punishers are motivated by some social good on punishing so all can benefit, <laughs> they will then effect on the, or free ride on the 10th round. Not the 11th, but they don't. What people think when they get punished is not the punishers are trying to create a cooperative society. They think the punishers are pissed off, and they're going to be pissed off, and they're going to punish me as long as I continue behaving this way. And they're correct. This is a very important point. Uh, People, I, I gave the name to this. It's one of the things I'm proud of, strong reciprocity in 2000 in a paper I wrote in the Journal of Theoretical Biology. Strong reciprocity is the willingness to punish others at a cost to yourself, even when there's no plausible chance that you will benefit from that in the future. It's purely altruistic, but it's negative altruistic. You're hurting people. And that's altruistic because it creates cooperation. Part of the reason you cooperate in society it's because people around you, your neighbors that are looking at me, throwing my garbage over the fence, they're going to get back at me. And that's the way society works. And by the way, this worked when we were hunter-gatherers long before there were prisons, long before there were judges, long before there were police. There were no police in those days, but if there was a malfeasance, some guy is screwing up, they would get together as a group and they would punish them collectively. So this is a very, very punishment. By the way, uh, this is so interesting to me. If you read a sociology text, the idea of revenge, mm-hmm. vindication, retaliation, mm-hmm. oh no, that's pathological behavior. You, you don't tell your kid, well, if Johnny hits you, you go hit him back. Now, some people do do that. But, you know, mostly you don't. You say, don't keep away from Johnny. You know. um, revenge, vindication, um, retaliation, these are pathological. But they're the most human behaviors you, there are. If you go to, the, I, I often tell my students, go to the movies. There are two kinds of movies. Love movies and revenge movies. <laughs> Ladies like the, the love movies and the guys like the, and the revenge movies. Honor Schwarzenegger runs around. He, he has this idyllic family, and some bad guys come in and kill his dog and his wife. And the rest of the movie is Arnold Schwarzenegger killing everybody in sight. That's revenge. And then people come out of the movie and say, oh, That was a very good movie, it was a very uh, enlightening movie, you know. And revenge. But you're not allowed to talk about it that way. It was a very artistic movie, you know. Chainsaw was wonderful. Um, and when people get, uh, are, are harmed by criminals and the criminals go to court or are, are, uh, tried in a court, very often 
the harmed people or their relatives go to the trial and say, hurt the guy, hurt the guy. Well, what are they doing? I mean, your kid got run over by a drunk driver. Are you afraid if he gets off, he'll come and hit, hit another kid of yours? No. You want him to hurt. You want to hurt him. But they don't say that. But when the guy is convicted, they say, well, we finally have closure on this. Um, we can we can now be peaceful, you know. What do you think? Why don't you just say, you really like it that they put it to that guy, didn't you? Yeah, I feel good and he hurts. Some people do say that, but mostly they don't. My point is, all of sociology has missed one of the fundamental driving forces of human behavior, which is revenge. It's not the only one. I mean, there, there, are, there are many others, too. In particular, people, most people are moral, and they get great pleasure of being able to wake up in the morning and say, I have been a good person. There's nobody, I'm, I'm, I've done the right thing. Um, so that's what these games do. They kind of bring out very simple games, um, very complex human behaviors that sometimes were unrecognized. You can still look in a sociology textbook 20 years after, you know, these experiments, and they'll say nothing about revenge, vindication, retaliation, etc. except rational. Of course, you can retaliate rationally to, um, I don't mean rationally, self-interestedly or self-regardingly to establish a reputation for, you know, not not having people hurt you. But these um, often have in cases where there's no way that you're going to be hurt again, and there's no, no reputational effect at all. Um, okay, so uh, since we're talking about things also like uh, police and judges and prisons, I mean, in large-scale modern societies, in game-theoretical terms, uh, how would you talk about the role that, for example, the police plays? Well, I think I did, I think I did say that. They're, they're, the police are what economists call public goods. Namely, we don't each have our own police. We have a collective police, and we each pay taxes, so to have a force in general. Now, of course, we also have, you can have not personal police. You're not even allowed to have personal police. Um, private citizens cannot do what police do. They're not allowed to do it. It's illegal. Uh, so it's a public good. And uh, what good, what does it get? Well, the, most of what it gets is the, it, it prevents the unraveling of cooperation. That is, um, there are going to be bad guys out there. The, this idea that, oh, in the good society, everybody's goody-goody. Well, not with humans. No, sir. In fact, it's not, it's called, it's, it's not a Nash equilibrium for everybody to be a good guy. Because if everybody's a good guy, then you don't need any police. And if there's no police, it's always better not to be a good guy because you're never going to get caught by anybody. So there's no Nash equilibrium in which the police are absent. You have to have, now, as I say, in, in a primitive, I don't want to say primitive, but simple society or hunter-gatherer society, they don't have police, but it's a very small society, and they get together all the time to deal with the police functions. Now, they don't have prisons at all in, uh, in uh, pre-modern societies. Um, there's no prisons because there are no public institutions, and there's no money. There's no way to have a... So what they do is ostracize you mm -hmm. um, from the community in some way or another forever or for a period of time until 
they decide you can come back and be a good member of society. But that's what police do. I don't think there's any, it's quite obvious. The point is, it's not like there are, you know, a few bad guys and everybody else is a good guy and you want to catch the bad guys. Because if they're just a few bad guys, you let them do what they do. You know, police forces are very expensive. No, it's if there are a few bad guys. Some of the people who aren't bad guys see the bad guys getting away with stuff and they say, well, I'll do it too. Why should I be a good guy when there's, there's no penalty to being a bad guy? So it's called the unraveling of cooperation. Um, and you have to have uh, police for that. Now, of course, in a, in a authoritarian society, police have other functions. Uh, they're, uh, one of the main functions is preventing cooperation among people who are against the uh, authoritarian regime. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to say police are always good. In fact, states are not always good. Most states are what I would call predatory states. Um, they're predatory. The people in them are in there to make money. And the, uh, the, the populace is the um, uh, exploited group. Mm -hmm. And that's the most dangerous part of, that's why there's so much uh, uh, poverty in the world is because there are so many predatory states. It's not, it's not capitalism or technology or human nature. It's that you have predatory states. The states aren't doing what is needed for the population. And the reason that the level of poverty, by the way, unless people know it, one of the most amazing things that's happened in the past 30 years is a dramatic drop in poverty around the world. Dramatic. I mean, like talking about 90% drop in poverty around. There's still plenty of it. I'm not trying to be, you know, uh, forgetting about the uh, nature, the actual nature of poverty, but it's dropped very much. Why? because some predatory states have become non-predatory. Now, sometimes that's because of democracy, as in Thailand or uh, India, but China, too, has about the, the biggest drop in, in poverty. It's definitely an authoritarian state, but it's an authoritarian state that's very careful about exploiting the population. They're very careful because it's a very large country, it's very diverse, and they're deathly afraid of, 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 of revolutions. So, um, at any rate, what I'm saying is that the police have many, they have many behaviors in different countries, and some of them are very uh, uh, predatory. But in a country that's well run, the police simply uh, make sure the cooperation doesn't unravel by promoting egalitarian and uh, cooperative solutions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so let's now talk about another kind of game that is the ultimatum game. And I guess th this is a very interesting type of game, particularly as far as I know, when people uh, test people from different cultures and different societies, they, oh, yeah. get, they get some large differences in, ter in terms of how, for example, the amount of money that people consider a good offer and and they yes. accept from the other person because for example as far as i know i guess that 
in weird societies or at least, <laughs> or at least in North America, people uh, tend to offer something like 40% or 50% of what they're given and people accept those kinds of offers. But there are other uh, non-weird, more small-scale societies yeah. where they seem to be more similar to what we would call homo economicus and if you and if the person that is going to give the money is offered ten dollars and they only give one dollar the other person accepts the same so i guess that's very interesting to talk about that and also particularly because of the cultural differences yes okay first of all i want to say that's not true <laughs> there's no society where they offer one and it's accepted not the, at any rate, let, let me start at the beginning. One of the things we did in our work was we studied, we did the ultimatum game and some other games in 15 small-scale societies around the world, in Africa, in Latin America, in Europe, uh, in Asia. We had hunter-gatherers. We had small-scale um, uh, horticulturalists. We had Mongolian herders we had um you know we had all sorts of different types mm -hmm. there was no society that where where homo economic is ruled none mm -hmm. now and and there were big differences but they're not the differences you would think okay. there were societies there was no society that offered um less than um 30 percent can I say what the ultimate game is? I did not, so let me say uh, that. First. No, not yet. Yeah. Okay, so let's say what the game is. There are two players. They don't see each other. It's totally anonymous. Player one is called the um, proposer, and he's given, say, $10. Mm -hmm. Now, in some societies, there's no money, so you have to use something other than, than money. But let's say it's money. He's given $10, and, he say, and the experimenter says, over there, there's some guy, and he's called the responder. Mm -hmm. You can offer him any amount of money from $1 to $10, mm -hmm. and if he accepts it, he gets that money, and you get what's left. So if you offer him $3 and he accepts, he gets 3 and you get 7 mm -hmm. But if he rejects, you both get 0 mm -hmm. <laughs> And that's the game. That's all there is to it. Now, if you're self-regarding, you will accept anything because it's better than nothing. So you'll accept one dollar. Mm -hmm. And if the proposer thinks you're self-regarding and he is himself self-regarding, he will offer you one dollar. And that's called the Nash equilibrium. You offer the guy one dollar, he gets one, you get nine, you go home. Mm -hmm. By the way, it's not repeated. Just once. Okay. Um, but it turns out that in no society, are do you find more than very few responders or proposers who are self-regarding the proposer may think you're self-regarding but he's not he still wants to give you a fairer share so he offers you three or four or five even if he thinks you're, not because he's afraid you're going to reject the offer because he thinks it's the right thing to do mm -hmm. <clears throat> and if you're a responder and some guy offers you one, almost always he'll reject it. Mm -hmm. 
Why? Because it makes him happier to stick it to the other guy to get lose nine than for him to get one. He can go home and say, I stuck it to that guy. He tried to offer me one, and I rejected it. Now, here's what's going on. You say it's anonymous. You don't know the other guy. Neither of them know each other, but they know themselves. When the game is over, you go home, and you have to say what you did. And if you say, well, he offered me one, and he got nine, but one's better than nothing. Not, no society did anything like that. The Machiganga Indians of the Peruvian Amazon, they had the lowest offers. They're pretty low offers, an average of three, and nobody ever rejected anything. Mm -hmm. uh, because in that society, it turns out culturally that people don't reject offers. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of reject. It's very dangerous to reject an offer because it creates animosity. Right. And um, you can have big feuds and battles. What do you do in, in a society like that? Someone comes to dinner and they bring you a, a chicken, but the chicken looks terrible. Scrawny chicken, old chicken. You don't say, oh, I'm not going to take that stupid chicken. Get out of here. You say, thank you so much. Wonderful chicken. Thank you. But then the next day you go around and tell everybody, he gave me a chicken. You should see the chicken. It looked like crap. <laughs> so, in other words, that's strong reciprocity. Uh, so um, here's where I would, I would generalize it to say this. In these games, people come into the games with their morality of their society, and they don't drop it at the door. They behave the way you expect to behave in that society, not, not just the material payoffs and the self-regarding uh, payoffs. And that happened in every society. There were societies. One, um, one, one of the groups we studied, were, uh, they were whalers. They, they were highly cooperative because they went out in these boats with 15 or 20 people, and they caught these whales that weighed as much as 150 people. So they're, and they shared. They had complex ways of dividing up the prey so that uh, everybody's happy. So they're very cooperative. And in, in that society, people made what are called hyper-fair offers. Mm -hmm. The proposer wouldn't offer three, four, or five. He'd offer nine to the other guy. Right. And he would be rejected. He offer nine, and the other guy rejects it. Now, how do you figure that? Well, the answer is simple. In that society, no, uh, okay. This is just hypothetical. I'm mixing two, two societies up. But um, in that society, there's competitive gift-giving. That is, people become high-statured by giving to other people. Mm -hmm. But they only accept if they're in need. In other words, if, 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 if your life is okay and you don't need any gift, you, you don't want any gift. You don't want the other guy to be um, socially uh, superior to you. So what's going on in this game is the responder is saying he thinks he's so big, such a big shot. He's got, he's a proposer. He's got 10, and he thinks he's going to make me feel like this by offering me nine. So I'm not going to do it. I'm going to reject it. I'm going to say, I didn't need that. It's called a hyper-competitive offer. Reject. So we had all sorts of behaviors showing up like this. There's another behavior that we did not find in the public goods game, but has been found since then, and is very important. Uh, it's called the bully. We call it the bully. The bully in the public goods game punishes the good guys. 
<laughs> you can imagine that there's a decline in cooperation very fast. And those are some gains. After one or two times, nobody's contributing at all. What is going on? Well, the bully, bully societies tend to be uh, kind of tribal societies in which mm. groups, uh, people do not deal with anonymous others. When you have a public goods game, there's a bunch of anonymous people. You don't know who they are. They're not your tribe. They're not your relatives. And you have nothing, you don't have any uh, connection to them at all. So you don't put anything in. Fuck them. Oh, excuse me. I'm on the air. Uh, screw them. But then they punish you. And then you get really angry. They're trying to impose their values on you. So you punish them back. So in other words, these games can show very complex behaviors, even very simple games. That's what's good about these games, because they're so simple, it's very hard to, um, to interpret them any other way. Let me give you an example, the ultimatum game. Oh, see, did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah yes, there are no yes. societies in which they play homo economicus or anything close to that. It's simply not done. Even economists, by the way, you'd think that since they learned it in school, that if you if you play the ultimatum game with with economists, they will be homo economicus. No way. They're just like everybody else. Now there is a, a famous article showing that economics students tend to be more selfish than uh, other disciplines. I, I I would dispute that. There's a whole bunch of evidence on that. It turns out business school students are, but business school students learn. They learn in school to be greedy. I mean, I've written several articles on this with the business school um, professors at Harvard, a business school professor at Harvard. They taught them to be greedy. And then you wonder why they turn out to be greedy, because you're creating a whole culture of the firm in which it's perfectly normal to be greedy. Now, you may say, well, that's isn't that what they're supposed to do, maximize profits. Yes, maximize profits. But you maximize profits by being a nice guy. I don't mean by being uncompetitive. I mean by taking into account all of the moral um, conditions that, that surround your, your job, your stakeholders, your clients, your workers, your stockholders. And if stockholders hire some guy who will say, yeah, I'm just going to maximize profits for you guys, you should say, oh, really? Why are you going to do that? Why would you maximize anything for me? If you're really greedy, you'll just maximize for you. So if you, even if you're a stockholder, you never hire anybody who says they're going to maximize for you because they're not. <laughs> they're just liars. Now, uh, we could go on and on. This is where this game theory stuff leads. It leads to an understanding of complex social relationships that, um, that you can't get just by looking out at society without any... Uh, preconceptions about the rationality and strategic interaction. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, maybe we could give a couple more examples of games, but let me ask you this. Um, how do you look at the interaction, if there's any, of course, between game theoretical dynamics in a, soci in a given society and their culture? Because, I mean, th there's that aspect about 
culture and how culture influences human behavior? I mean, how do you look at it? Do you think that people, uh, because of the ecological conditions, for example, where they live in, that over time uh, um, a sort of game theoretical system or or they or they reach or they reach a Nash equilibrium in those conditions and then that's why they behave and then they come up with a culture that is related to that or that people can come up with a culture that influences the game that's happening in that society. I okay. mean it's a, it's a bit difficult, right? No, and it, well look, here's a general a general statement. Mm -hmm. Equilibrium conditions in social interactions are fairly well developed and I would say if you read one of my books you'll find a lot about that. Equilibrium is easy. Dynamics is hard. We do mm -hmm. economic dynamics. I've written a lot about that, the so-called um, general equilibrium model and its dynamics. That's hard. But social dynamics are infinitely hard. We don't have any good theories of social dynamics or cultural dynamics. We don't have any good theory of it at all. After the fact, you can, you can you know, justify Like, for instance, <clears throat> 20 years ago, the idea of gay marriage in the United States would have been absurd. Mm -hmm. I mean, <clears throat> you could be arrested for being gay. Alan Turing was arrested for being gay, the greatest scientist of the time. Um, and then all of a sudden, everybody says, oh, gay, gay marriage is fine, you know. Uh, now, there's some religious groups that disagree, but it happens overnight. Foot binding in China. It was for a thousand of years. And all of a sudden, it disappeared. And you cannot point out some material fact, like the government did it, you know, or they changed their uh, religion. It happened. We don't know why COVID. But what about abortion? There's no, not been much change in abortion in the United States in, in support for abortion rights in 50 years. Now, there has been in other countries, but not in the U.S. Now, I can go and try to explain it, but in fact, we don't have a good idea. What we, the, the thing I would stress really importantly is what we call gene culture coevolution. Mm -hmm. It's a very long-term theory of how the human race has evolved from its hominid background to the present. And it says that two things. We all know that uh, genes affect culture. That is, humans, uh, there's certain things that human beings do because we are genetically predisposed to doing it. Everything I've talked about, uh, they're genetic predispositions for strong reciprocity. Mm -hmm. Almost everybody does it. Little babies do it. They prefer to cooperate with puppets who are cooperative to other puppets, not to themselves. Mm -hmm. They see two puppets, and one of them is bashing the other on the head, and the other one is, you know, being nice. Who do you want to play with? They want to play with the, not even play with them. Who, who do you look at? You look at the good guy. Mm -hmm. So humans have a predisposition for strong reciprocity. You don't have to teach a kid to, you know, bite another kid or <laughs> angry at him. You have to teach them not to. Mostly we have to teach people not to be vindictive and, and retributive. My wife comes home from work and she says, so-and-so did such-and-such and I'm going to do such-and-such back. I say, wait a minute here. 
you know, this is not really the right thing to do because uh, they'll do it back again and that's, et cetera, et cetera. But he, so humans do have these genetic predispositions and they're deeply embedded in culture. Mm-hmm. What people don't realize is it goes exactly in this other direction also. All of our genes are the product of our cultures. Not all, but the specifically human genetic uh, structure are a product of our culture. For instance, let me give you an example. Gene culture, co-evolution, mm-hmm. speech. If you study linguistics, they make it sound like we evolved to talk because we have big brains. Mm-hmm. So the, the cultural thing, communication through talking, is a product of the big brain. Problem. Why do you think chimpanzees can't talk? It's because they have small brains? No, they can't talk because they don't have the, the throat muscles. They don't have the larynx. They don't have the tongue. They don't have the nerves in the face that allow them to talk. So a chimpanzee can make six or seven sounds. You know, <laughs> you can teach a chimpanzee to communicate with chips. So the chips have certain shapes. And this is the water chip, and this is the food chip, and this is the banana chip, and this is I love you chip. And the chimpanzees play with the chips, and they communicate with you. But they can't say I love you. Why? Because they don't have the physical um, equipment to talk. Now, the physical equipment to talk is genetic. You're born with a larynx low in the throat, with a tongue, with huge numbers of nerves that go to the brain. Or the face. You ever notice that the that, that, um, other primates they have very few facial muscles. They don't communicate with their face. They don't even look at each other. Mm-hmm. Humans' facial muscles are central to everything they do. And when you learn to act, you learn how to control these muscles. That uh, so the question is, what's going on? There's only one plausible answer. People started to communicate verbally. <laughs> And some of them with a few more nerves and a slightly lower landing, they could communicate a little better. Mm-hmm. And communicating was fitness enhancing for the group and for the individual. So they were having more children. And their children had lower throats and larynxes and tongues and all that. So our ability to talk and communicate verbally is a product of a culture. The genes are the effect of the culture. So that's gene culture coevolution, and that goes on to the present, and it's still going on. Mm-hmm. But but I mean, there are we're talking about very specific things. I mean, things yeah, like sure. you you refer to language, but it 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 needs to be something that creates a selective pressure on people. Right? Yes, yes. I I, I wrote. I, I should mention that part of my task in integrating or the behavioral sciences is to actually publish in journals in all the behavioral sciences, not just economics and biology. Mm-hmm. But so I had a t- target article, the lead article in current anthropology, which is one of the you know top anthropology journals, mm-hmm. with commentaries by you know a dozen other people, anthropologists all, or ten other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I dealt exactly with this. The, the, uh, the, it was how did humans come to have the 
political structure that they have. Um, and what is the role of language in that, etc. And I, I, I can't go through the whole thing here, but the upshot is that humans required, they differed from um, their chimpanzee an uh, ancestors by being, um, uh, by rejecting the um, hierarchical structure of a chimpanzee society with an alpha male that bullies everybody else around. Mm -hmm. And in, in chimpanzee society, there's almost no collective cooperation. There is collective defense mm -hmm. against predators, but not that much cooperation in doing anything. Um, and humans, when humans evolved from uh, earlier hominids, the first thing they did was develop weapons. Now, there are no chimpanzee weapons. Chimpanzee can't throw a stone. Uh, and they, have, they, they do have some, they do use sticks, you know, to, to ferret out uh, bush babies and stuff. But they don't hit each other with weapons. They hit each other with fists. And they can't hurt each other very much. But as soon as you get weapons, like uh, not bow and arrows, but uh, flint stones and uh, clubs that you can use, and as soon as what humans can do really well is throw. If you ever watch the baseball game, you'll know that. No, if a chimpanzee tries to throw a stone, it goes wherever. It doesn't even throw. We have incredibly developed muscles around the uh, um, midsection for twisting and throwing and using weapons. Now, once you can use weapons, there can be no alpha male. Because when he goes to sleep, you can hit him over the head and he's gone. You can't, you can't run a society on hierarchical authoritarian grounds when you have weapons until you have developed things like armies and money, etc., which is you know, 100,000 years later. Then you can re restore hierarchical relations and, and coercive. So I argue that <clears throat> early humans needed co to be cooperative. They needed a leader, but they not a leader who extracted stuff like from the exploitative state, but who was a good leader with good ideas, who knew what to do. And communication, verbal communication, is being able to persuade people that you have good ideas was therefore fitness enhancing. And so the whole human development moved in the direction of persuasion persuasive relations people not not uh winning by force because once you have weapons you you can't win by force anymore uh because you can be destroyed in no time by the way you their fights in in in, in chimpanzees or gorillas were f four on one four against one and they still can't defeat the one for a half an hour or so eventually they can but humans Blast, blast, one, one chop and someone's gone. So you can't depend on authoritarian. And by the way, that, <clears throat> that does, when you do get states and money and you can have hierarchical relations, you don't want to be the leader unless you're crazy. Because leaders don't last very long. If you've ever watched any of the movies about the Middle Ages or the early modern period, you go to bed at night, you don't wake up in the morning. Your brother kills you. 
um, you know, in other words, it's still extremely uh, uh, dangerous, uh, and you're you're very susceptible. So uh, that's why they develop parties because parties can rule, even though individuals and in parties can be destroyed individually. Um, so on and on. So what I'm saying is that the the culture of persuasion accounts for all for for the development of our uh, communicative abilities and ultimately for uh, our, our ability to cooperate in large groups with common cultures. Mm -hmm. So uh, let me just ask you one last question and also to close that aspect about gene culture coevolution. Do you think that uh, our altruism or our strong reciprocity proclivities, let's say, as a human species, could have evolved through some process of a cultural group selection. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that's what just really what I just said. That is persuasiveness. Uh, people were promoted for higher fitness according to their ability to cooperate with the group and promote the values of the group. This is a very rare thing. Almost no social species do that. Even if they're social, they don't have leaders. So yes, definitely. And then societies that didn't do that, in which they did not develop that kind of leadership. Uh, for instance, there was an old theory. I don't want to denigrate theories. It was called Machiavellian theory of uh, evolution, which was that, that people are politically Machiavellian and the most evil Machiavellian ones are the ones that win. But that, that I mean, I'm, I'm overstating it because the people who wrote that wrote other stuff, which I think is absolutely brilliant and correct. That's ridiculous because Machiavellians are going to lose it out to people who are not Machiavellians. Um, so at any rate, uh, yes, I think definitely cultural group selection is uh, exactly what's going on. But that's really true. You know, culture, humans have culture. Really, the, what's very important about culture is that it's cumulative. Uh, other animals do have some cultures. You know, you, you know they behave in certain ways, etc. Uh, and sometimes they have specialized things, like you know, certain groups of chimpanzees will learn how to crack open coconuts. Mm -hmm. But it's not cumulative. They can pass over maybe one generation, but no more, and then th things happen and disappear. Humans have cumulative culture which means we learn more and more over time. Um, and uh, that, uh, that is definitely central to, uh, to why we are successful as a species. And of course, now um, we need a new culture because we're, we're the global he hegemon and uh, we're destroying ourselves. So we need a new culture to deal with that. But I do want to say, and I said this, said this a long time ago, talking to people who do ecology, uh, that don't believe that people are selfish. If you have a good art, a theory, and it's required for the salvation of the human race, most people will come to accept that over time. Don't think you have to just talk about the, you know, their individual material benefits of uh, contributing to a better world, because that's not the way people are. People have morals. And they, they do what they think is right, mostly. And you may disagree with their morals. If you're a coal miner in Kentucky, 
your morality may say make more coal for my coal miner, miner friends. So that's still a morality. So um, yes, we definitely uh, uh, believe it's very important. Cultural uh, uh, selection is very important, but only really in humans. Mm -hmm. And so uh, before we end, let me just ask you this, since you touched on that point, is there something that we can learn via game theory or something like that, that we could apply to our modern societies to really create new structures of cooperation to solve issues like climate change, for example? Uh, I'm not sure whether you can or not, because uh, you, you, the people who are activists and who work on this and the scientists, they come up with new novel ideas and they don't know game theory. You don't have to know game theory to behave according to the way game theory says. Mm -hmm. It's like, sure. you know, if you want to uh, explain a, a, a billiard player why he hits a shot in a certain direction, you may use differential equations, but you, he doesn't use differential equations. No, we use it to explain behavior. We don't expect it to use it necessarily to engineer behavior. Mm -hmm. Now, well, that being said, there are certain things that a game theorist would bring to a discussion that uh, might be important. For instance, I, I, I remember when most of my students, this is many years ago, they believed in universal um, disarmament. That is, uh, you should get rid of all nukes, and you should do it first. Uh, and we can live in a world without nukes. Hmm. I, I still know people like that. They said it was criminal that they ever developed the atom bomb. Now, they never read a book about the history of that thing and they're just talking through their heads. There's no question that that bomb was going to be developed. It's going to be developed no matter what. And that notion of Nash equilibrium is important for that. What you say to people is, look, if there were no, no country had atom bombs, then any country that developed the atom bomb would be able to rule the other countries. So it's not equilibrium to say nobody does it. What, you, what they worked out, actually, for, for many, many years, and is still in effect, is mutual uh, destruction. And a guaranteed mutual destruction. And you can look and see game theoretically. It is perfectly, uh, <clears throat> perfectly reasonable. Now, it's very dangerous because um, you can make mistakes. You can have wars by mistake. And we almost did have several um, nuclear wars by mistake, if you read the literature on that. Uh, and the only reason that they didn't occur was because people who were supposed to push the button wouldn't push the button. Not just on you know, our side, but the Russians. You know, the, this Russian general wouldn't push the button because Khrushchev was in uh, the United Nations. And uh, we don't know why, but he was. Khrushchev was in the United States. And the uh, general thought or his defense was, well, I didn't think it was real because he wouldn't kill himself. But yes, uh, game theory is an important addition to the arsenal of things we need in order to solve the social problems that we have. Very important. But as I say, and by the way, I think social psychology, I've criticized it because they tend not to use uh, the rational actor model. In fact, I once heard a speaker say this funny thing. He said, people are not uh, logical, they're psychological. Oh, 
but nevertheless, they've done a lot of wonderful studies and uh, the applied social psychology is very, very important. But um, uh, generally, I think it's been, uh, it's impossible to talk about psychology without talking about society. So uh, you can talk about vision, you can talk about audition, you can talk about memory, but you can't talk about behavior without talking about society. So I don't believe there should be a special discipline called social psychology. Of course, I don't believe there should be a sociology either. I think we need new ways to divide up the behavioral sciences according to problems you want to solve. And then you get people from all disciplines that are relevant to solving those problems. But they can't solve them unless they speak a common language. And that's what my work is trying to do, to say, to attack the principles of a given discipline and make it impossible to cooperate with other disciplines. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. So, Dr. Gintis, we've already done almost two hours here. But, yeah. So, before we go, would you like to tell again people about what are the best books uh, for them to get in touch with your work and learn a little bit more about what we've been talking uh, he about here today? Well, I'll tell you, I have a problem, which is um, I don't write popular books. <laughs> I don't write them because I don't think that way. So if if you're, you know, if you want, what I can say is I've written three books that I think people would, and they give great reviews, but they do all have math in them. So people who are math phobic, you can't just read around them. The first one is called The Bounds of Reason. That is pretty heavy, and it's mostly for economists. And it tries to say, what do you have to do to existing economic theory to make it compatible with the insights from political science and sociology. Mm -hmm. And the second, if you're interested in that, you'll see. I mean, you won't believe this, but every, I have found every discipline has beliefs that everybody shares that are just completely wrong. It also has beliefs that everybody shares that are just completely right. And the problem is the ones that are right aren't recognized by other disciplines. Mm -hmm. so, when they should be. So um, economists have, there are lots of ideas in economics, or a number of ideas, that are just wrong. And that I, uh, methodological individualism is the biggest one. The idea that you can always work from <clears throat> the individual behavior up to the social behavior. Because uh, I won't go into the technical details, but it works the opposite way, too. This, you can't understand the individual without the social behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's bounds of reason. Um, the second was with my co-author Samuel Bowles, who you should talk to, you might want to talk to. He's extremely, extremely interesting. Mm -hmm. And that's called um, the cooperative, a cooperative species. Mm -hmm. And it's, it goes through a lot of what I talked about today and a lot more, and especially the role of war and the comp uh, in, in People who like altruism and talk about morality the way I do, they tend to think that violence is bad, always bad. <clears throat> Retribution, that stuff is bad. It's not. I mean, the fact is, personally, I don't, I don't have a bone, retributive bone in my body. Not a single one. But most people do. I don't get angry at people. I don't try to get revenge. But most people do, but not everybody. So the, the, the message of, of, of a cooperative species is 
that we are seriously cooperative, mostly because or partially because we are seriously combative. That is, people cooperate to compete with each other. Mm-hmm. And that is really a modern society. What is a corporation or a business? It's a bunch of people cooperating with each other to beat out some other businesses. Mm-hmm. But war is also it's cooperation. You know, Darwin said this a long time ago. Uh, you know, if you can't co- if you cooperate with your other tribe members, you can win battles where, where people don't cooperate. They have no way to possibly win a battle. So our book says we are cooperative because we're competitive, and we are competitive because we're cooperative, and that these go together back and forth. And it's all, and again, it has a lot of math in it and a lot of model building, but it's mostly evolutionary biology and anthropology. And people can read it. And you look at the reviews on Amazon, you'll see. And the third I just did, well, it's not just anymore. Um, a few years ago, a few years ago, it's called Individuality and Entanglement. Mm-hmm. And it, it tries to develop a general, to, to do the integration I talked about in the behavioral sciences. In particular, it, it does a model for sociology, which I would call the core analytical model for sociology. It's a great model if you care about equilibrium, but it's not a good model for dynamics because it doesn't have any dynamics. We don't know the dynamics. <clears throat> for economics, we do know the dynamics. And I have a long chapter on that. Um, and for political science, I didn't quite put a, pull it all together, but I really have a core model for political theory there too. It's a very complex model. It's a very weird model. But let me just tell you two parts of it which are interesting. One, I argue that political theory is about treating society as a game. Mm -hmm. And politics is changing the rules of the game or enforcing the rules of the game. And the reason we're the only species that has politics is that we're the only species that plays games. I don't mean that plays games, that makes up games and then plays them. Mm -hmm. You can take a three-year-old child and you can teach it rules of a game. You know, it's a simple game. And they'll play the game. And if you, if you violate the rules, they'll yell, you can't do that. That's wrong. You can't do that with any animal. You can't touch any animal game. You can't teach the ultimatum game to chimpanzees sure. or birds. Now, the, the birds can be very smart, and they can do very wonderful tool-type things, and they can speak. But you can't teach them a game. You can't say, we're going to play this game. Now I'm going to tell you the rules. I call it homo ludens, man the player. And since we can play games, our whole society is a game. So when we want to change society, we change the rules. So political theory is the theory of how you create games for society at large. Um, And the second thing is, uh, for politics, this is so weird that people just don't get it unless they study the rational actor model. And that is this. Political behavior in large societies is totally moral. It's totally unself-regarding. It could be self-interested, yes, but not un. Why? Well, think first of all of voting. Why do you vote? Well, you may say, I vote because I want this guy to get elected. And you say, well, but if you didn't vote, he needed to get elected or not. It doesn't depend on you. Well, what kind of thing is that to say? If everybody felt that way, nobody would vote. 
in my eyesight. Yeah, it's true, but they don't feel that way. That doesn't explain why you do it. And at that point, you have to be careful because they're likely to hit you. Because the point is, people think they're being self-interested or self-regarding when they vote, but they can't be because in, there's been no election in, in any English-speaking country going back 200 years where a single person um, determined the outcome uh, of, the, of the election uh, for a large election, say more than 40,000 people. I go through this in my book. What do people mean when they say they're helping someone get elected? That doesn't fit the rational actor model. The rational actor model says choose what to do to maximize your goal, whatever your goal is. But no matter what you choose, whether you decide to vote or not vote, it doesn't matter. You can't affect an outcome. So there's a whole realm of social behavior in political in politics that lies outside the rational actor model. And nobody has ever addressed that properly. Um, so I think that is the, uh, so, so sometimes people say to me, oh, well, you know, this group is all selfish. The uh, Tea Party, my left-wing friend, the Tea Party, they're all selfish. They just want it for themselves. I say, really? Well, why would they vote if they, wanted, if they were selfish? They would never vote. Now, try to explain that to people. They don't understand it. They understand we have what I call distributed cognition over network minds. Excuse the big words, but it means that we're not, we don't have individual consciousnesses. Part of our brain is hooked up to other brains all over the place. So when you say to someone, why vote? You can't change the outcome. Say, That's crazy. I'm helping somebody get elected. How can you be helping if it doesn't matter whether you do it or don't do it? And the answer is it can't. I'm not arguing that people are irrational. I'm not arguing that this, this behavior is in any way irrational, but it's certainly a critique of the rational actor model. Now, in political science or political theory, there are a thousand papers that try to show why people vote. And, and they use the rational actor model. Or they make up some other stupid model, like oh, people vote because they think it's their duty to vote. You know, I don't want to go through this, but that's completely implausible. Um, at any rate, uh, so that's what I do in individuality and entanglement. Our minds are entangled. Now, the word entanglement comes from physics. Mm -hmm. uh, if you ever studied uh, quantum mechanics, it's the yeah. weirdest idea you ever could imagine <laughs> in quantum mechanics. And I'm not suggesting quantum mechanics is relevant for human behavior, but uh, I think the title's cute, so I used it. Okay, great. So, Dr. Gintis, I will be including those books and other things in the description box of the interview, and I hope that people go and check them out, even if they have a lot of math that people don't like. But anyway, they have very interesting insights as well. So, uh, and thank you again for coming a second time on the show, and maybe somewhere in the future we could do even a further interview or something like that. So. I'll talk to you about physics next time. <laughs> okay. 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 Bye-bye. Thanks, okay. Ricardo.
Hi everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. To keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you don't like Patreon, you also have the alternatives of Subscribestar and PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of the video. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Santel Gelinas, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Gondriano, Jane Eninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, John Connors, Adam Castle, Vega Giddy, Doctors Jerry Muller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, and Bo Weingard, and also my three producers, Isar Webb, Rosie, and Jim Frank. Thank you for all.